Uh, if you are new to Nelson, uh, my name is Jeff Strong. I'm pastor here at Nelson Covenant Church. Uh, why don't you just join me as we uh, pray here for a moment. God, would you use this message? Would you use your word? Would you use the service to stir up something in our hearts, individually and collectively, God? We ask this in your name. Amen. There was a rabbi who was walking along a dusty trail just by the Sea of Galilee, and he was reciting the scripture portion that he had been encouraging his disciples to memorize that day from the scroll of Isaiah. And it was getting dark, and in his kind of passionate focus on the text, he was so preoccupied that he had come to a fork in the road and he had very unconsciously veered right instead of left. And after a few minutes, he was startled out of his prayerful, prayerful reflection um, by a voice calling out to him as dusk was settling uh, on the day. Who are you and what are you doing here? And the rabbi kind of opened his eyes, looked around, and instantly his heart sank. And he realized his mistake. He realized he had turned right when he should have turned left. And that was a problem because turning left led back uh, to Capernaum where he lived with his wife and children. And right traveled down a bit more of a dangerous path. And where he found himself was about 50 yards away from a small but garrisoned Roman outpost. There was a Roman centurion sentry posted on top of a small wall. And he repeated the question to the rabbi. He said, who are you and what are you doing here? And the rabbi looked up at the Roman sentry and he kind of tilted his head. And he stared at him. And he said, what did you just ask me? And the Roman soldier lifted up his torch and he drew his sword and he leaned out over the wall and he said, I asked you who you are and what you're doing here. And the rabbi just locked eyes with with the soldier and he stared at him. And he said, how much do they pay you to ask me those questions? The Roman soldier looked puzzled and he said, three denarii a week, Jew. What is that to you? And the rabbi thought for a moment. And he said, I'll pay you double if you stand outside my home and ask me those two questions every morning before I leave. Who are you and what are you doing here? Those are two critical questions. Those are supremely important questions of perspective and priorities. And the one question I have for you this morning, the first question is, can you even answer those questions for yourself? Who are you and what are you doing here? And the second question I have is, can we answer those questions for us as a church? Who are we 
And what are we doing here? This is a really important time of year. It's a really important season for us to get clarity on those questions, to wrestle with them. Because if we don't, we are just going to move into this fall season. We're going to move into 2015 and then roll over into 2016 and likely just unconsciously adopt the habits that have brought us here to this point, repeat the patterns that have just become ingrained. And what that will likely mean is that for... for us individually and together, this year is going to roll out and play out like every other year. And I don't want that to happen. I honestly believe God has called me here to help usher in a new season of vitality and vibrancy for this church, but also um, a new beginning and a new season of vibrancy, spiritually speaking, for this entire city of Nelson. But if that's going to happen, that means we've all got to get really serious and clear about those questions. Who are we and what are we doing here? I was thinking about how you get clarity on those questions, even just from an individual point of view. And I was mulling over that and I was thinking kind of about the broad contours of the scriptural story. I was thinking through kind of major markers in Israel's journey and then Jesus and the establishment of the church and then the early church. And I realized if you want to get clarity on who you are and what you're supposed to be doing here, you've got to go to the summit. You've got to go to mountaintops. The summit is the highest point on a mountain. And from the summit, you, you gain this perspective because you're distanced from street-level view. You gain this perspective on your world that is just impossible to get as you're running about doing things at the ground level of your everyday life. And from the summit, you can get a point of view that's needed to ensure that you're living for what's actually important, not just what appears to be important or seems important in the moment or is maybe just urgent, but what really matters. And throughout the Bible, I was thinking about this, and I realized, you know, you can trace it through the Bible. Summits, mountaintops, are places that play a starring role again and again and again in the drama of Scripture. Almost from the beginning of the Bible, mountains are these places where people powerfully encounter God. God appears to people in transformative ways on summits. Summits are places where God shows up and he reveals to people or he teaches them for the first time who he is, who they are, and how they're supposed to live. Abraham shows his willingness to sacrifice Isaac and encounters God on a mountain. God appears to Moses and speaks from the burning bush on Horeb, the mountain of God. Uh, Elijah encounters God on the same mountain in 1 Kings 19. You have the Israelites, which is probably the encounter par excellence, Uh, in the Old Testament, where God summits himself at the top of Mount Sinai. And he says to the people, gather around the base of the mountain. He calls Moses up, and Moses interacts with God. And God gives and uh, takes these group of slaves and says, I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to do something in and through you powerfully. And that happens between God and Moses on a summit. And then the significance of the mountains just kind of leads right into the New Testament. You see this mountain motif, this summit motif happening again and again and again. Summits are places where Jesus takes people often so that they can see him and his kingdom priorities clearly. 
He gives them distance from their everyday ground level lives and says, this is what really matters. This is what you need to give your life for. This is what following me looks like. This is who you are. And this is what you're supposed to be doing here. Sermon on the Mount, given on a mountain. Jesus appoints 12, his first 12 disciples, he turns, he selects apostles. He does that on a mountain. Uh, Matthew, in particular, has a series of summon encounters where Jesus is doing things on a mountain. Jesus' temptation, when he refutes the devil, happens on a mountaintop. Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 15, records a number of healings that happened on a mountaintop. Transfiguration in Matthew 17, Jesus' final discourse with his disciples. And then the commissioning of the apostles, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, all happens in these places of summits. So the summit, symbolically, in the scripture, are these places of spiritual refreshment and spiritual revival and renewal and refocusing. And I think that's why so many people around here summit the mountains around here, right? I mean, everyone kind of realizes and has that experience of when you get into that, that, to that summit, and you can look out on the city of Nelson or maybe in a, at a different vista, there is just something, creation kind of overwhelms you, the glory and power of creation overwhelms you, and even if you're not a believer, there is a clarity of mind that comes when you're viewing things from a mountaintop. I think a lot of people summit mountains here because whether they can articulate it, they understand in their bones that mountain, mountaintop viewpoints are essential to keeping yourself refocused on what actually matters most. To kind of burn away the inconsequential and to keep front and center the consequential and certainly as a Christian, the eternal. Now individually, we can remove ourselves. We could go this afternoon and go hike up to Pulpit Rock or go right up to the flagpole. We could summon a mountain and we could spend time there praying and reflecting on those, just those two questions. Who am I? And what am I doing here? We could, we could do that individually. That'd be a good thing to do. But how do we do that together as a church? How do you kind of wrestle with those questions together as an entire community? And I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, I think the way you do it is by taking time to come back to the mission statement that lies at the foundation of everything that you're supposed to be doing as a church. Because your mission statement as a church is supposed to be your summit statement. It is supposed to be the statement that you say, when we get distance, when we get alone with God, when we have clarity with God in terms of who God is, who we are, how we're supposed to live, this is the simplest, most basic, most clear, most precise, most focused statement that we can come up with that we need our, we're going to keep coming back to so that we don't get off track, so that we make sure that we're continuing to focus on what matters most and continuing to burn away secondary things. And our church has a summit statement. It has a mission statement. It's very, very simple, but it's very, very important. It's loving Jesus, loving people, transforming lives. That's this church's summit statement. That's our big picture outlook that I think we need to be coming back to consistently in order to live with passion and clarity and purpose. Now, I want to visit that summit statement over the next three weeks. I'm going to take each of those segments, and I'm just going to kind of parse them out. I want to unpack them a little bit because I want to show, I want to 
show us, maybe for the first time, maybe for a lot of us, remind ourselves why these things are the things that matter most. I want to unpack why we should be prioritizing these things before we prioritize a lot of other things in our lives, even if they're really good things. They come secondary to this. I've really got a fire in my belly about this. I'm, I'm, I'm really serious about this. I'm, I'm fired up about this. Part of that is because yesterday I took my son to Walmart and I spent five solid minutes trying to convince him that he needed the new Star Wars toys so that I could play with them. And he just kind of looked at them and he just stared in a confused state. He's like, I don't really like that, Daddy. That's what he said to me. So if you were at Nelson about quarter to three yesterday and you heard a sharp pop and crackle sound, that was my heart breaking. And it just sent reverberations through the city. <laughs> and so what he did is he, he picked a, um, a water bomber toy, um, right? Because he'd seen them this summer and the forest fires. And he was like, that's what he wanted to do. So we bought that and we played water bombing yesterday. And so, yes, there's a little bit of latent layover frustration from that encounter yesterday. So I'm a little bit more fired up this morning than normal. Got to kind of exercise out some of my frustration and disappointment. But I'm really fired up about this because when I get to those summit places myself, when I think through this, those questions as a pastor, this is what I want to define my life in ministry. And this is what I want to define the life and ministry of the church that I'm a part of. I believe God has called me here to help usher in a new season of ministry for this church and for this city. And it's a, a new season of vibrancy that is rooted in getting more clarity on what the gospel of Jesus is, what it means to follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, to allow his love and grace to permeate and have authority in your life. But I think that can only happen when we all learn to structure our lives around these priorities. I was thinking about it, and I thought, what's the strongest thing that I could say here to, like, drive this home? And I think what I would say is, if we honestly, like, deep in our heart, if we're not serious about these three things, then we should just shut the doors and sell the place and go about our business. Like, if we're honestly not serious about learning and growing and our love for Jesus, our love for people, and we don't have a passion and some kind of ambition to see other people transformed by that message? I guess my question would be, I don't, what, what, what are we doing? What kind of, really? What else are we doing that this isn't exciting to us, but fill in the blank is? Why are we really gathering? Why are we mobilizing ourselves? Why are we challenging ourselves? Do you want to be, I mean, do you want to be part of a church that just gives lip service to this? They would say, of course, this is our mission statement. Of course we love Jesus. We love people, transform lives, yada, yada, yada. I get, I get it. Do we want to be part of a church that would kind of say that, give lip service to that, but there's no ambition to see lost people saved? There's no ambition to see saved people grow? There's no ambition to see lives transformed by the gospel, to see marriages restored, to see people who have no hope or on the brink of suicide come to life and come to um, new life and new possibility in Christ? To see families broken apart by um, sinful, broken decisions be restored in the grace and love of God, to see um, everybody, young and old, coming to a greater clarifying sense of this is what I'm meant to do with my life and living out of life with a strong center and sense of calling, 
you want to be part of a church that's, that says they want to do those things, but actually kind of just, no one takes it really seriously. Like, we kind of just do churchy stuff. I don't want to be part of a church like that. I don't think you do either. I don't have time for part-time Christianity in my life. Discipleship to Jesus is one of the, makes for a terrible hobby. I haven't given my life to pursue Christianity light. I want to I try and chase after this thing myself. And I hope you do too. Because if we're not chasing after these things, if we're not continually and in deeper ways trying to tease these out and their relevance to our life and learning from Jesus how to move through these things, all this is ever going to be is just kind of a well-intended, maybe even noble, religious kind of circus show. And I want more than that for myself. I want more than that for us. I want more than that for you. And God wants more than that for us. Uh, about a month or a month and a half, half after my family moved to Nelson, the Driegers invited us over. And we had a great night connecting with them. And they invited another family over that had kind of the exact same number of kids as us with the exact same ages of kids as us, the Sparrow family. And Nick and Krista Sparrow, they attend Bethel Church. And it was a great time getting to know all of them. And at one point in the evening, later in the evening, we were kind of reflecting on the back deck and uh, the, um, kind of the Sparrows and the Driegers were reflecting on kind of the contours that they'd seen over Nelson over the time that they'd lived here, kind of like five to 10 year window. And just trying to talk through like, well, this is kind of what we noticed about the city and about churches and about the kind of the ebb and flow of ministry here and what seems to be happening. And at one point, Nick said, you know, when I look at the last five years especially and just what God has been doing, he said, I feel like God is setting things up. He's putting the pieces in place to prepare for a citywide revival. And I remember hearing that and kind of being like, oh, okay. Like I didn't really think too much of it at the moment. But I've come back to that idea again and again and again over the summer. I've prayed about it. I've thought about it. I've had follow-up conversations with him about that. And, you know, I don't know if that's where we're heading as, as a group of churches in this community. But as I thought and prayed about it, I realized that's where I want to be heading. That's what I want to have happen. I want revival to happen within this city. Now, for some of you, you're like, whoa, revival. Like, that sounds like Pentecostally, charismatic weird stuff. Ooh. And so uh, I just want to make sure that I'm clear here. I mean, unfortunately, yes, there's, there tends to be only one stream of the Christian faith that consistently talks about revival, and that is kind of the Pentecostal charismatic stream. Um, but I'm, I might not be using the term in the way that maybe some who have um, been a part of that stream w would use it. When I think of the word revival, and when I use that term, I kind of use it through the lens of what would be called like a reformed theological kind of worldview or window. And if you don't know much about theology and, you, and you're kind of like, aren't just Christians Christians and people read the Bible, don't worry about it. You don't need to know all the different uh, parsings of uh, theology. But there's kind of a stream of theology that um, it's just a way of interpreting the scripture. And it's called reform theology. And from this understanding, revival isn't about really crazy, wild signs and wonders and, and not even what we might immediately label as miraculous things. Um, it's not even necessarily about one particular growth or church having explosive church growth. We've gone from 200 to 400 to 1,000 people. 
Revival happens, according to this view, when the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit get ratcheted up, when they increase with a greater frequency and intensity. So what it means is that the Holy Spirit is kind of doing things on a daily level in this church, in this community, in this world. But in a time of revival, what happens is the, the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, kind of intensifies um, and brings more consistency to these ordinary operations. And those ordinary operations are threefold. This is what happens when revival happens. All at the same time, and with a greater intensity than normal, sleepy Christians wake up, nominal Christians actually get saved. And people who are not Christians and who are antagonistic towards Christianity actually get saved, usually in very dramatic ways. Now, ordinarily, that's happening all the time in bits and pieces all over. Sleepy Christians are waking up. People who think they're Christians, but they've just adopted that title. They're actually not, they haven't repented of their sin. They haven't turned their life over to Jesus. They realize they're not actually Christians. They get saved, and people who are antagonistic to faith are coming to faith. That's happening all the time. But when a revival happens, that happens disproportionately. It it happens at an abnormal pace, and it kind of happens all at once. And usually, not localized in one church, but in all the churches in an area. That's revival. And that's what I want to see happen. I want to see revival happen first and foremost in my life. I spent a lot of time this week saying, God, wake up sleepy parts of my own heart towards you that I've just kind of let become dormant. I want that to happen within this church. I want that to happen within all the churches in Nelson, and I want that to happen within our city. I can't make that happen. We can't make that happen. Revival isn't something you can orchestrate, but you can prepare for it, and you can pray for it. And I think the best way to prepare for it is to get serious about loving Jesus, loving people, and transforming lives. I think that's where you start. So this morning, I want to look at that first part of our mission statement, loving Jesus, and kind of get a summit perspective for why this is so important. Because when we love Jesus, what we're actually doing is we're building for revival. We can't control it, but we're saying, God, we want to learn to love you, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when there's a critical mass of people calling out to God, sometimes God blesses that region, that area, with revival. Not because of the the righteousness, necessarily, of the people. It's always a gift from God. But because there's just a critical mass of Christians who are like, I'm not really interested in just church as usual. Wouldn't it be awesome if one of our problems, if one of the problems of every church in Nelson was, in every church on average, 50 people became Christians in the next year? And we weren't really exactly sure what to do with them all, because no one's really had that kind of an influx in the churches and, and all the pastors had to meet together and say, what are we doing for discipleship and, and all these different things? And we had to all troubleshoot this together. That'd be an awesome problem to have. Let's talk about loving Jesus. One of the most important passages is Colossians 1, 15 to 20. It's a go-to passage for why Jesus is central to everything in the Christian life and why loving Jesus and serving him should be your highest priority. Colossians, they believe, is the the earliest recorded book in the New Testament. It's probably dated mid, even early 50s, which means it was written down and uh, transmitted uh, about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's very, very early by historical standards. It's about 15 to 20 years early 
earlier than the first gospel actually gets written down. So this is, the, this is one of the earliest books in the New Testament. And this section, verses 5 to 20, is Paul quoting something that was already known to the early church. If you look at most, most Bible commentators, they will say the stand, there's a stanza structure here in the Greek. And what that means is this was likely one of the earliest hymns or songs that the church sang together. Here's a side tangent. When you hear people say things like, Christianity was a ruse. It was developed in the third century by Constantine. No one believed that Jesus was divine until then, and then he made Jesus divine, and kind of the Da Vinci Code, and all this kind of conspiracy theory around, well, the church just started it as a group who appreciated Jesus' teachings as a prophet, and they tried to do good things, but then later on, Jesus got mythologized, or um, the legend of you know, Jesus the man became Jesus the Christ, and that kind of happened sometime two or three hundred years later, and they rejigged the scriptures and made it up. And the, o- the only thing you need to remember when you hear an argument like that is Colossians 1, 15 to 20. There's a lot of arguments you could make there. The only one you need to remember is Colossians 1, 15 to 20, because this is the earliest, um, this is the earliest book that is referencing the earliest hymn that has the most concentrated theology on who Jesus is. And this was written down and transmitted already to early churches within 20 years of Jesus resurrecting from the dead. So this is long before anybody has a chance to doctor it or um, the church is powerful enough to kind of get all the heads together and say, hmm, let's, let's kind of ratchet up who this Jesus is. Look what this, look what this passage says. One of the first songs of the early church. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in all things, sorry, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. And one of the things I want you to notice is, is go back to verse 18. It says, Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. He might be number one. And what that means is, if you're a Christian, then loving Jesus and learning to love Jesus, heart, soul, mind, and strength with every dimension of your personhood, that is your actual highest priority. When you ask questions like, what is God's will for my life? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? Um, What on earth am I here for? That is the, the first entry point answer. You are here to learn to make Christ supreme in all things. That means that Jesus is not just a guru. He's not just a consultant. He is a Lord and master over your life. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price, and now you're called to live for Jesus. But the interesting thing is that that sounds very constricting. He's now your master. You're his servant. You're a slave to Christ is another metaphor the New Testament uses. But this, ironically, is not a confining relationship. The more you submit to his lordship and to his mastery and obey him in all things, big and small, from finances to how you conduct your marriage to what you do with your spare time to how you use your body, you actually grow into 
a liberating freedom. You grow into a stronger sense of self-identity, but it's only in him and through him that that happens. Life coheres. Life kind of begins to gel, and people have the experience of like, I'm kind of finding myself and life is working at the same time when you give Jesus supremacy in your life, when his love and his authority become your highest value, when they become your highest desire, when they become your, your, your foremost allegiance, your life begins to cohere. Because under his lordship, the power and penalty of sin begins to weaken and deaden in your life. And he begins to restore you to right relationship with him, right relationship to other people, right relationship to the created world, and right relationship with your own sense of self-identity. So even though it might sound at first like you're giving your life up and over to Jesus as if, well, there it goes, it's actually the most liberating, uh, empowering thing you can do with your life. And rejecting Jesus and not loving Jesus and keeping him on the sidelines as a guru or as a consultant that you dip into once in a while while you live your life, that's what will confine you. That's what will, over time, 10, 20, 30 years from now, your world will become smaller, your life will not cohere, things that you think should be working. Why can't, why am I not making momentum in this area of my life? Because all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus, and they cohere in Jesus. So if you are not in Jesus and learning to live into him through obedience and love and devotion, yeah, of course life's not going to work. There's not, there's not going to be momentum. It's going to feel like a constant barrage of stumbling blocks and frustrations. Jesus is the center of the biblical story. He's supposed to be the center of our story, of our identity. He is called a king. He's called a savior. He's called a lord because he's the only one that can redeem and restore and save and deliver from even the deepest pit. If you are a Christian, loving Jesus and honoring him, giving him supremacy in your life is the most important priority you have. And if you are a Christian, that is your number one priority. That is my number one priority. Now, if you're here, I, I, I would imagine if you are a Christian, there's a deep part of your heart that says, I told, I'm not resistant to that at all. I want that to happen. I want to give Jesus supremacy in all things. I just don't always know how to do it. I'm not sure what that looks like maybe generally speaking, or maybe in specific areas of my life, I'm like, I- I'm not sure. So how do we make Jesus supreme in our lives? Well, the first thing I want to say is there's no quick fix. There's no kind of, um, there's no easy path. There's no, um, I wish there was. I think a lot of, I think the, Christian publishing industry bears evidence to the fact that there's a lot of people who think they have found the silver bullet and a lot of people who want that. But pastorally and personally, my experience has been there's no quick fix. But there are principles. There are three levels of engagement that you have to be engaging in if you want to learn to love Jesus deeply and passionately and to give him supremacy in your life. I think you need to be cultivating three levels of faith formation, what I would call it. You have to be working and wrestling with your faith at three levels kind of simultaneously. The first level is individually. You just need to be cultivating individual devotion in your own life, getting away with God, prayer, Bible study, all those little habits, fasting, 
serving in secret, giving. You also need to be involved in some kind of a small group, which is more than you, obviously. But it's a group that you're journeying with and learning from and learning with and learning to be vulnerable to and caring for and supporting. And you're learning together. They're kind of like your your home team of like, this is what I've been thinking through or I'm, I'm wrestling with how to be faithful to God in this circumstance. And they're the people in your life who over time you develop this relationship with in such a way that they can help encourage you and coach you and challenge you as you go on that journey. And, and the third level that we need to be forming our faith is, is around Sunday gatherings. This kind of gathering is incredibly important. Um, more and more we're hearing or I'm hearing, and I, I know of, there's lots of justifications for not taking like institutional church seriously or Sunday morning stuff. It's about the kingdom. It's not about the church. All these false dichotomies start to get thrown around. I think all three levels of these are important. And I think all three levels of these are very, very necessary if you want a thriving, dynamic relationship with Jesus. If you take one of these away, just one, pick any one, you take one of them away, I really do think you've impeded and created a massive stumbling block in your ability to grow in your love for and your expression of love for Jesus. If you have, I, personally I'm walking with God, I'm doing stuff in my own life, I have a little small group, but I'm not a part of a church. I think you're kind of handicapping yourself spiritually. I'm part of a church on Sunday uh, and I do small groups, but I don't know, like individually I'm busy, stuff's happening, so I just kind of rely on those two things to kind of those are my intake. I think you're in trouble. You take away one of those things, and I think you're jeopardizing your ability to grow. You take away two of those things, and I just think you're in trouble. When I look at the pattern of my life, when I've only put one of these things in place, it's not very long before you're riding on fumes. And there's no vibrancy. And there's no vitality to your faith. So I think if we want to be people who are serious about loving Jesus, we have to figure out ways on all three of these levels to be forming our faith and allowing him to train us and to teach us what it means to love him. And this year, what I'm committing to do, and I just want to be honest and say, I'm asking you to do it too, is I'm asking you to commit to all three of those levels. For just this year, I want you to commit to all three of those levels. I want you to say, I'm going to learn and I'm going to take up the commitment to daily, even just for a few minutes, read scripture, pray, cultivate my faith on a per very personal level, just me and God. But I'm also going to do that in the context of a smaller group of people who can give me accountability, feedback, love me, challenge me. I can get different perspectives. We can love Jesus together in a way that isn't possible when it's just me and Jesus. But I'm also going to make being a part of a local church and a Sunday gathering, I'm going to make that a significant part. I'm going to make that a priority. That doesn't mean I'm going to become legalistic and say 52 weeks out of the year I'm going to be here on Sunday morning. But it does mean a shift away from when it works, if I'm around, if I feel like it, once, once a month is enough. It's just ratcheting up the commitment on all three levels. And today, what I'm going to ask you to do after the service is over is I'm going to ask you to sign up for a small group because that is the level of faith formation that I think is often the missing piece in a lot of people's lives. And I feel pretty bold, and it's, it's actually a very easy ask for me to say, I want you to sign up for a small group because 
when this church got together and said, where do we want to go? One of the things that came out of the vision document is we want to be a church of small groups. We want to be a place where people are, have that middle ground to learn and grow in their faith. And that's really exciting to me. It's really exciting that in my job description, part of what I'm made to do is to make sure I'm training and equipping small group leaders, helping small group ministries to thrive. We want people to be forming their faith on all three of those levels. We can't control what you do on an individual level. We can control what happens in a church-wide level. And we want to get stronger at saying, we're going to create an infrastructure in that middle ground of small groups so that people can find a group and be part of a group where they can receive pastoral care, where they can be loved, where they can be encouraged and also challenged. They can challenge that group. And that group together can build the trust and the love for each other and for God necessary to move into something new for everybody in that group. So we have small groups that are going to be organized around neighborhoods so that the people in those groups are stakeholders in that neighborhood. One of the things that I'm going to be pushing every small group, regardless of when you meet, where you meet is, is I want us to be serving together as a small group. So often church small groups become kind of half Bible study slash kind of Bible study, more like discussion, and then like hanging out and community building. That's great. Those are important things. Those are certainly things that we want to emphasize within our small groups. But I also want our groups once a month, once every other month, to be serving together within their community, to be saying, there's stuff that I can't do on an individual level, and our church, just because we can't do a million things, can't do all together, but our group could do this. Here's a way that our group could come together and bless this person in our neighborhood or these people who I know are struggling. Or maybe there's someone just in the group that's going through something and you can rally around them. We also have groups that are focused around kind of specific uh, life stage or um, uh, activity base. So we have ladies Bible study. Larissa is going to be um, leading that on Thursday mornings here at the church. We have a young adult small group that's going to be led by Blair. We also have, uh, this is super exciting. Um, this year in 2016, we're going to be sending a, a, a mission trip team to Ecuador. But that group kind of over the summer threw around the idea, why don't we turn this into a small group? So that instead of meeting like a month or two before the trip and then you do the trip and then after you debrief once, we're actually journeying together towards this. And this is obviously our big serve together. This is our big way to impact. But we want to turn it into a group. I think it's an awesome idea. So if you're interested in being a part of that group, which is being a part of that trip, why don't you just sign up for that? And our small groups are really simple. They're just communities, smaller communities, six, 12 people, maybe 14. They meet in homes throughout the week. But they're intentional gatherings that meet together to remind ourselves the priority of joining in God's mission in the world, to love Jesus, love people, and see lives transformed. They're the heart of our pastoral care network. These are the places where your needs and the needs of people you care about are going to be made known, and then people can pray for them so people aren't lost and, and fall, falling through the cracks. This is where you learn to love other people within this group, but also you learn to receive love by your family here. They're led by people who I'm going to train, have ongoing oversight and support. This is a hugely important part of our vision um, for the next few years. And we're starting it in earnest uh, in the month of October. You will grow in your love for Jesus, heart, soul, mind, strength, as, you're, as part of a small group. I, I just guarantee it, you will. And these weekly meetings... 
I think that what they'll do is spiritually, they will become your summit. These will become the places where you'll come together once a week and slow down a bit and get in the word and pray and share each other's journey and serve together in such a way that you'll say, this was needed, this was important, this helped me, this is going to help me move into the rest of my week with a greater sense of clarity. These are going to become your spiritual summit places where you can experience love and care and challenge and support and learning, learning who God is, who you are, and what you're supposed to be doing here. And so after the benediction, before you head outside to grab lunch, I want you to sign up for a small group. And at this point, maybe you're like, I don't know if I'm totally, totally down with this. I don't know if I'm, and you're not signing up, you're not signing in blood. You're just signing to say, I'd like some more information on, you know, what are the groups that are going to be meeting in the Rosemont area? Could someone get back to me this week about information on those groups? So this is just to say, I'm willing. I'm willing to take that risk and say, yeah, I, I think I might be interested, but I'd like some more information. There's a table right back there. It has all these small groups listed on it. So when we dismiss after the benediction, I invite you to go there and sign up for a small group. For the neighborhood groups, um, the, the kind of the specialized small groups, they already have leaders. Um, but for the neighborhood groups, if you want to, if you're, if you're willing to host or to lead, there's a space there where you can um, check yes to willing to host, willing to lead. And I'm going to be following up with you um, if you check that this week and finding out what works for you so that we can get let people know in that area you know, the Strongs are able to host and lead a group. It's going to be on Wednesday night starting, you know, this date in, in October or whatever. Um, and then we're going to be getting back to you later in the next week for those of you who signed up and said, I want to attend a group. And we'll be getting back to you and making sure that you know when the group time starts. I was reading a mountain story, a summit story. I had never noticed this before, ever, 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 ever. I was thinking about all of this and sign, signing up for small groups and, and I, was, um, I, I came and paused and stopped at Matthew 17 and the transfiguration. It says this. I'm just gonna, you can read the whole thing later, but just, just the first two verses are pretty amazing. After six day, days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There... He, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And one of the things I never noticed before was Jesus revealed himself in that moment to a small group. It wasn't to one person, but it also wasn't like at a big Galilean mega Christian festival, and it wasn't a synagogue. He took a small group of people and he said, come away with me. Come up to the summit. I want to show you. I want to give you a new perspective on who I am, which will inform now who you are and how you're supposed to live. Jesus, it was right there, hidden in plain sight. I've never noticed it before. Jesus revealed himself within the context of a small group. And I, I, I think there's something there. I think God works powerfully when a small group of people are willing to distance themselves from the hum of everyday life and get together alone with Jesus and say, we're here to learn from you and with you, so don't miss out. 
Who are we and what are we doing here? We are a community of people saved by the grace of God. We are empowered by grace. We're seeking as best as we know how to make Jesus supreme in all things. And in order to make that happen, we're committing ourselves to loving Jesus and loving people and seeing lives transformed. Let's pray. God, as we sing this final song, impress 